Welcome to The Golden Shadow. My name is Aaron Rogerson. And I'm Melissa Polizzi. We're here with our second guest ever, Peter Lindbergh, the creator of The Stoa, which is a online event space, a pseudo community, and something that is developing maybe into something greater and more powerful than that. But we'll have to wait and see. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on your podcast. We are honored to have you here. Yeah, welcome, Peter. So I want to start off with your personal journey of individuation, let's say, or your personal journey of self-development. I know that you were a Stoic for a while, and you had a Stoic meetup that you led. How did you get into this realm of self-work or self-actualization? Mm. Well, I'd still identify, I guess, as a Stoic or technically I would say I'm a modified Stoic because I don't fully adopt the philosophy wholesale. Um, but my sort of inner work, personal development journey began when I was a teenager, maybe 17 uh, years old. That was when I was introduced to philosophy. Um, I, you know, I was reading all these deep books at first and then I started reading self-help um, like Napoleon Hill, Dale Carnegie. That was sort of my entry point, uh, just hyper practical uh, things. And then just, if you see my bookshelf, like I have like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books and they're so eclectic. There's no one kind of like genre you can pinpoint. Um, so I engaged in sort of uh, kind of spiritual threads, uh, philosophical threads and uh, psychological threads. Um, and I don't, I can't remember how young or shadow work came on my radar, um, but it did. And some of the techniques like active imagination um, that I sort of experimented with were quite helpful. Um, but yeah, it was, there's no like consistent method. It was very uh, bespoke journey. It was very messy journey, um, not glamorous at all. Uh, and I didn't really have, well, I had a series of coaches and mentors later on, um, Andrew Taggart, uh, uh, who you um, recently interviewed, Aaron. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Jordan Peterson uh, was my therapist for two years and uh, did a lot of dream work um, with him and shadow work with him. Uh, but the kind of the consistent through line was sort of a stoic thread too. Mm -hmm. uh, I found that grounded me with all these sort of uh, experiments that uh, I engaged in. So yeah, it wasn't like a perfect timeline there, but that is sort of uh, gives you a sense of what my uh, journey was uh, with inner work and personal development. Mm. 17 is quite young, I feel, to really begin this journey. I'm curious if there's maybe just like a natural inclination that you had to start exploring this at a young age, or was there any sort of uh, monumental event that really spurred you to dive into that self-development? Mm. I don't know. Uh, when I was, you know, I had a pretty decent childhood. It just, most of the memories are pretty sunny. Um, and 
then there was an event that happened when I was younger. Uh, it was quite like socially traumatic. Um, and I had a bunch of, I, I don't want to go too much into it, but a bunch of people like, you know, gang up on me. This is around grade eight. Um, and I felt really socially isolated, mm. which led to um, social uh, anxiety, I would say. And then that inhibited me in a lot of ways in uh, high school. Um, and I was somewhat of a loner, uh, had you know a few close friends, but didn't fulfill that kind of social potential. Um, and uh, so I think that informed a lot of uh, inward looking, mm. which was not something that you know I did much uh, beforehand. Uh, was very active into sports and stuff like that. And so when sort of being liberated from high school, I fast-tracked high school, got into university uh, a year early, and um, it felt like freedom, you know, like, and, and most of the, I, I got in for philosophy at the University of Toronto, and most of the books I read were outside of the classroom too. Mm-hmm. Like I was one of those type of guys that just showed up to hand in his essay and then showed up for the, the exam. And then I just did my own own thing throughout the whole whole year and somehow got decent enough grades to pass. Um, but most of my reading was outside of the, the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, so there was uh, no real kind of uh, like big event that I could point to, but probably has something to do with the, the social trauma and then being somewhat of a loner mm-hmm. and alienated uh, and developing an acquired taste with that state too, uh, during that time. Uh, and I imagine that was responsible for making me, uh, go inward and in, in doing that, that type of work. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, they have an experience of embarking upon the path of self-work or inner work, which is often a very personal thing or a very solitary thing. Like I know it was for me. Um, and I think it probably kind of was for Alyssa too, mm-hmm. but you did at one point, seem to get activated by the idea of organizing groups or communities. And that certainly seems to be a real gift of yours now is not just the personal work, but sort of like the collective work or the community work. And I'm wondering if there was a certain point where that kind of clicked for you is like you wanted to go more in that direction of building something for a lot of people or if it was just sort of a natural inclination to begin with, where like you always felt very oriented towards like group work as opposed to sort of the more solitary, like inward turning work. Well, I was kind of doing both, I would say. Uh, I was always a natural leader. Um, like I was the... Um, sort of the most popular kid in the schoolyard, so to speak, kind of, I was like the the little alpha male, you know, always got chosen first for the soccer team or the basketball team. Um, uh, Yes, I always had that, that I was accustomed to being uh, in a leadership role uh, amongst most of the social groups I was in when I was young uh, on the sports teams and just in the, like I said, in the playground. Uh, And then, so it was an interesting contrast from being kind of like the most popular uh, person, the social nexus, as, as, as some would say, uh, in the pickup artist scene, uh, to being a, a complete loner. <laughs> you know, it's like it was like night or day. Mm-hmm. So I felt like kind of the um, the best of both worlds. I taste both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, I got pretty good at both of them, or like, you know, I got good enough. And so when I started kind of going through the social trauma and getting more confident, um, I started experimenting with groups. And a lot of them were private um, groups at first, a lot of men's groups, um, did mastermind groups, uh, did sort of like secret debate clubs, uh, all in service of, you know, betterment. Um, and those sort of, you know, I still, I still have them today, uh, uh, these private groups, but, um, there was a point too, where I, I think I told my brother, cause when meetup.com, that, that website first came around and I told my brother, Hey, you should do this. And he, and he did it and he created like the, he's into like the gaming kind of nerd culture or geek culture as they call it. And then he created like one of the most popular geek cultures in, uh, in Toronto. Um, and I just kind of like took his, uh, you know, um, strategy for that and then created these philosophy groups one of them was stoicism the other one was more of a kind of a performative agnostic kind of like intellectual thing and i combined both of those groups basically to become the stoa uh the online space that you mentioned have you found through this experience of starting to facilitate groups that it brought some nuance to your own personal journey of self-development and individuation? Did people bring in some new threads, uh, modalities that really caught on for you or kind of being in that center of so many other people kind of bringing in their own material and energy? I'm just curious how that really impacted you through these experiences. Well, there's so much things you pick up that you don't even know what you pick up, Yeah, you know, like being in a bunch of groups. And I've been in various kind of, like I said, private and public groups pretty much at the center. Um, and I was when I was a kid as well. And you learn a lot and you don't even know basically what you become skilled at. Mm. You just become good at sort of um, feeling a room, feeling a group, um, knowing who's upset, knowing who uh, has not been heard. Um, and then holding space for that. And so a lot of the stuff I can't even say, um, what exactly I learned. I'm, I'm sort of like learning it now by kind of yeah. journaling every day and kind of teasing a lot of it out. Uh, but that definitely was informative, uh, on my development, yeah. um, being with other people, yeah. uh, and growing with them. Yeah. It's this whole other level of complexity. I think as you start to add in the communal layer, or even just smaller groups. I don't know, Arne, I think you could sort of speak to that too, is it sort of amplifies this energy of self-development and philosophical exploration where things, people start to really work off each other in this incredibly dynamic way. And you amplify both, I think, in positive and sometimes negative ways too. Yeah, it really depends. I mean, the complexity rises very quickly once you start adding people. And as you move from like three people to four people, like mm -hmm. the complexity just jumps up. Yeah like crazy. So I, I definitely think there's sort of a mutual amplification that can happen and people serve as important mirrors for your own work to say like, is your work actually working? And, um, you know, are you still kind of being an asshole and you don't realize it? Um, and that's the importance of groups. But at the same time, I think that groups can totally derail your own personal development yeah. if okay. they are not serving as people who want to 
push you and help you individuate as much as there are people who kind of want to just perpetuate some sort of social coherence or mm-hmm. um, feel enabled by you. So it's, it's always a, a matter of the people involved. It's like if you got people you trust, great. If you don't, if you have strangers, it's really a mixed bag, I think. Right. And I don't have much uh, experience creating or living in intentional communities, like a place like a, maybe a monastic academy can call that. Um, and I imagine that would be quite an interesting experience. Mine was like really tight, uh, tightly kind of tightly knit uh, mastermind or private men's groups um, that had parameters and interesting uh, like college of practices baked in. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones were just like these wide open like discussion groups that anyone can show. And then the medium there to source the people was meetup, uh, at least the in-person ones in Toronto. And there's, uh, I find the people who tend to rely on meetup are people who have social anxiety or they're on their spectrum. They don't have the greatest social skills and they're like pushing themselves out there to mm-hmm. exercise that muscle and make friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a certain kind of energy with that. Uh, and then the stoa is just this weird new thing. <laughs> like, I think we're all trying to make sense of right now. Um, but it has combinations of, of both of those. So I'm kind of imagining, uh, you, you mentioned private men's group. You also mentioned secret debate club. And I'm kind of imagining, <laughs> and I'm kind of the imagining like rule. a skulls club. You know, it's like, there's like this crazy initiation with like mud wrestling and standing outside in the cold as long as possible or things like that. Are these sort of uh, exclusive groups that you need to somehow find your way in and pass the test or... Or what are you actually talking about? <laughs> you know, that's not too far from the truth. Some of the stuff that you, uh, <laughs> uh, we did have uh, um, like rites of passage to get mm-hmm. in. Uh, we screened, screened members um, quite rigorously. Um, yeah, I can't tell you all the details, uh, Aaron. Of but, course uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me uh, in private. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, uh, there's something yeah. to be said, though, for that type of ritual um, within a group because it those barriers of entry force people to be taking um, entrance into this group incredibly seriously. And that shifts the energy of who gathers together and making sure that there isn't someone who's kind of ambivalent about it. You commit to it in a way that you're willing to kind of put yourself through these rigors. And that creates a whole new dynamic. Once you enter into it, there's a commitment, there's a dynamism to it. It's not necessarily something I think we see pretty often nowadays. And especially with the expansion of online meetup groups where anything goes, you get this huge mixed bag of energy. Um, I've had a lot of experience with meetup as well as I was um, event managing before the pandemic. And you just get a huge spectrum of different people, different areas of life, different energies, some that are incredibly chaotic and unstable, other who are, you know, curious and inquisitive. Um, So... Yeah, that's why Alyssa introduced branding into her tarot group. You like actually have to get a brand <laughs> that has like the death card on it in order to to enter. So it's t- taking uh, notes from Nexium, I, I see. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, is the future of the Stoa in any way going to be more exclusive as time moves on, or do you see the Stoa as remaining a sort of open doors? Anyone who wants to join in at any moment is welcome to come and go as they please. Etc. I don't know. Um, 
but I think it would be nice to always have that element because uh, it kind of makes sense. It is a stoa, uh, a digital colonnade, and colonnade you just come, come in, come out. But um, perhaps there's things that are officially associated with it that are more exclusive or private. I'm experimenting um, with uh, exclusive patron only events now. Um, so there's like people have gift in the game, people who are gifting me an ongoing gift via Patreon, you know, then they have access to uh, events and I'm going to do more intimate kind of experimental events on it. So um, I'm quite excited to experiment with that. Uh, and, you know, I've used Stoa as sort of like an incubator for things like that, whether it's mastermind groups or um, we're bringing these squad wealth people in and they have an interesting kind of modality that I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to explore. Um, so I like the idea of, of, being an incubator for psychotechnology that allows these communities to um, grow, emerge, and experiment. Yeah, I think the internet uh, and what you're really doing with the STOA affords a incredible amount of creative exploration and that you can have these different levels that in person would be just really difficult to manage. Um, so it's exciting to see where you're developing it and kind of doing some of these patron-only events brings a different energy to the type of open event that you might see on a weekly basis. So continuing that experimentation, I think, is what keeps the motivation and excitement alive in a project like this. Yeah, 100%. So your path eventually led you to academia in some form. You weren't actually like going down the normal, like, uh, being a teacher's assistant and going towards being a professor or anything like that, but you were sort of involved in academia in some way at the University of Toronto, right? Um, well, like, like I mentioned, I, I, I after I fast-tracked high school, I got into university, and I just basically went to university because my parents pressured me. Yeah. Uh, like, I had to do something. Um, and then I was... I wasn't... Yeah, I, I hardly went to any classes. I just sort of, <laughs> like, uh, you know, the essays and, and, and exams. Um and I had an idea like, oh, you know, because I really loved philosophy. Uh, so I had an idea, maybe I'll be uh, kind of pursue that professional path. Um, but my whole intuition was saying, no, don't do that. <laughs> and so I'm glad I listened. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so no. Uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, associated with John Verveke and his sort of... Uh, um, his lab and me and him have been doing kind of what we call cowboy research before COVID came online of all these intersubjective modalities. Uh, so there's an association and connection there. But beyond that, yeah, I, I was, I wouldn't call myself an academic. Mm. Okay. Maybe I misunderstood then. So how, how did you start working with John Berbecki? How did you get connected to that lab? So, uh, I knew John, um, I was sort of like his uh, student in his meditation class when I was at the mm -hmm. University of Toronto because he taught uh, meditations classes at, at uh, lunchtime. Mm -hmm. So that's when I first met him. And uh, David Gosley uh, was uh, um, mm -hmm. a grad student of uh, John. Uh, and I'm, I'm really good friends with David. Uh, so I knew John. We weren't that close, uh, though. Uh, and then when I had my podcast, which was called Intellectual Explorers Club, which was a performative agnostic podcast, which is the same name of the in-person group that I had. Um, I invited John on there and we just hit it off. Uh, we actually got lunch, I think before or after. And I was telling him all the kind of the intersubjective modalities that I was researching, uh, like circling and stuff like that. 
and he got just like his mind was like blown by this the stuff exists and it kind of like mapped over to a lot of stuff he did um and i'm the guy that kind of introduced john to the whole sense making scene mm-hmm. i introduced him to guy sangstock the the founder of circling who was also on my podcast um and uh, daniel thornson you know then john kind of just blew up from there in, the, in that scene uh and yeah, him and I did a lot of investigation. We went to uh, Insight. Uh, um, what's that one called again? The Buddhistic one. Uh, Insight Dialogue, uh, Circling, uh, Verbal Aikido, all these different techniques. Uh, and then we had a private uh, circling group biweekly, John and I, uh, with actually Lubomir, who did In Shadow, uh, Daniel Kazanjian, and Yasna, who now does the... Um, Willow Branch of the Monastic Academy. Mm. Uh, we had a, a bi-weekly circling group. Um, and then COVID happened and then John just sort of like, <laughs> you know, like just uh, became like best friends with the guy who founded Circling, which is quite cool. Um, so yeah, that's how uh, John and I uh, met originally and reconnected. So what I'm hearing is that you're partially responsible for the creation of the Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. <laughs> Like you really, you were no, the I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> um, no, John was, uh, I think he just started launching that series when him and I met. Um, and some of the stuff that we were researching did inform the content of that series. Because uh, he's got introduced, he mentioned circling a couple of times in it. Um, but what excited him so much was that how compatible uh, these actual practices were with what his conclusions were, how, mm-hmm. you know, how we're going to uh, ameliorate the, the meaning crisis is getting into deep dialogue, dialogos and whatnot, mm-hmm. and how these practices can help and inform that. And my follow-up to you partially being responsible for waking for the meaning crisis was that you also had um, some sort of relationship with Jordan Peterson and might have helped been the pathway for him to get involved in the larger scene of sense-making in some way. Aaron is going to be responsible for the myth of uh, <laughs> Peter Lindbergh now, <laughs> single-handedly. Um, yes, so uh, Jordan and I, Jordan Peterson was um, my therapist for two years uh, before he entered the culture war. Um, and my last session with him was uh, the day he released that pronoun video. Um, and it didn't, it just, that was just, that was not the reason why it was my last session. It just happened to be that way. And then, uh, yeah, and, and it was uh, really cool. There seems to be this interesting hub at the University of Toronto, which has felt very compelling from the outside to see these pretty dynamic figures, or at least a lot of energy around this exploration. Is Do you agree with that in any way? Is there any other campuses or other areas of... Um, you know, collegiate level uh, academia or exploration that you feel has matched what you've seen happening at University of Toronto? Yeah, I think in like sort of this, this sense making space, there's like a hype around Toronto just because a lot of, uh, you know, people are from it. Mm. Uh, but when you're in Toronto, just, I don't know, you know, it's like any other city. Um, yeah. uh, it's not like this crazy sense of aliveness going on. But there does seem to be a lot of uh, like culture war, uh, war stuff that, mm. uh originates here mm-hmm. um like the slut walk that was originally um i don't know if you remember that but there was like uh it's kind of this feminist slut walk there's a police officer in toronto uh he said women should you know dress conservatively he didn't word it like that but he said something and then 
you know, these feminists said, fuck that. And they called it the slut walk and that went all over the world and it was in mm-hmm. India. Uh, and there's other stuff like that. Um, a lot of incel attacks in Toronto. I think there was like two or three mm-hmm. uh, um, that got worldwide recognition. Or I mean, like, you know, people were worldwide were, were, were aware of it. Um, so a lot of stuff with the culture war seems to uh, happen here. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that also gives it some kind of uh, uh, an interesting energy. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got started working with Peterson, how he became your therapist and what maybe those first few sessions with him were like? Yeah. So um, I first came across Peterson, I think when I was just leaving um, university. So just to get a timeline, I'm, I was uh, 36 now. Um, and then I, don't know, I was like, you know, teenager, early 20s um, when I was in university. And so um, last year, a friend of mine who was a a psychology major invited me to a lecture, um, lecture series. And both Peterson, actually, and both Peterson and Verveke were um, teaching it. And a lot of stuff Verveke was saying was kind of over my head, but it was kind of interesting. Uh, And then Peterson started talking. And, you know, he has like this, like Kermit the Frog voice. uh, uh, And he starts talking about dragons. And I'm just like, it was cool. I'm like, like, how the the hell is this psychology? Like, that's when, like, you know, as a, like, an undergraduate philosophy major, just, I was just like, what the heck is this? Um, But then something that he said about chaos, I I thought I didn't, like, I didn't vibe with him at first. Uh, He seemed like some kind of, like, um, grumpy guy that didn't make any sense to me why why this is considered psychology. but there's something said about chaos really kind of like, you know, like kind of pinched me in a way. And then it stayed with me. And I remember I wrote this like spontaneous poem right after it. Um, it just came out of me. Uh, actually, I, I remember, I still remember it. And then it's related to uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Um, and yeah, then that was my first encounter with him. And I haven't, and then I, I realized he was sort of like a mini celebrity. Uh, he was on TVO, a local television show. He had a lecture series. Uh, he he was quite popular in the, uh, the psychological department or in in uh, U of T, the psychology department, I should say. Um, and yeah, so I was kind of following his work a little bit. Uh, and then when I was working at the University of Toronto, um, I was working in, in administrative capacity there, uh, and. I went to, I, I, and the great thing about working at the university is like, oh, I felt like I was still in school because I was on campus. And then I, I, I attended a lot of lectures and just like randomly sit, sat in some. And then, you know, the, the ones that are after our school, like symposiums and stuff. And I went to one, I think it was called Mind Matters. Uh, and again, John Ravakey was there and Peterson was there. And this was kind of like my sort of reinduct- reintroduction to Peterson. And then he just did this like really fucking badass uh, presentation. And there's like, you know, there's sort of like a, kind of like this kind of beef between John Verveke and Jordan Peterson was kind of cool. Like, you know, this like underlying thing going on. And then it felt like they were like, they were, just, they were talking to each other. And I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? Like I started like liking him then. Like I didn't really vibe with him that much uh, when I first saw him. Uh, and he mentioned he was uh, a therapist. He had a, a, a practice. I had no idea about that. Um, and then University of Toronto, they had like, they have like a really generous benefit plan. They had like mm-hmm. that for psychotherapy. Um, and I was like, fuck it, I'll just email him. Uh, and then, um, you know, like who doesn't have issues? So I, I, had, I had issues and then I emailed him and then uh, he said, sure, email me back a month later and he scheduled me in. Mm-hmm. And 
yeah, then I, I was his uh, client for two years. Yeah, you bring up some really interesting points about Peterson. What a strange figure in the psychology world that he is, just from a, I don't know, sort of the status quo of how uh, psychology is being taught in academia is really not tapping into the realms of depth psychology. And I think that Peterson, no matter what you think about him, has done so much to just bring that conversation back into the limelight. Um, standard psychology nowadays is really focusing on behavioral therapies that kind of scratch the ego surface. And his discourse and his lectures touch upon all of these sort of forgotten threads, you might say. Like maybe they talk a little bit about Freud in, in his psychology class, but you know, you never really get into Jung anymore. He's seen as uh, a kind of ostracized figure in many ways because of the realms that he was willing to dip into and study and to pull these insights from. And Peterson certainly brings in these mythological elements, talking about chaos, talking about the dragon, the hero's journey. And I think that's part of why he's been such a compelling figure is that he's really synthesizing a lot of different worlds together and making it approachable for people. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I never call reading he was sort of an oddball, even when he was at Harvard, you know, he was like the only guy there into young, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then he was before he became famous, uh, him and actual John Vervakian, another guy at UFT, they were uh, consistently rated like the life changing professors wow, at the University yeah. of Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, because if you came in contact with them, it's like, it wasn't just about learning things in a disembodied way your life was affected by it it was it was impacted by it yeah um and it's just the way he taught you know his, his older lectures uh were all all online i still think mm -hmm. um and uh yeah it's pretty intense how he taught yeah uh it's interesting to hear that about verveki as well i do think he he, he has a, a very different energy and uh, kind of message. He's much more Eastern. Maybe Arne can speak a little bit more to Verveke. You've listened to his series, but he's incredibly powerful as well and really also is synthesizing all these different areas together to make sense of what's going on in our lives right now and to provide all these different tools and uh, different viewpoints to really examine these dynamics in. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, synthesis point that Peter made is or maybe you said it, I think you said it actually, mm -hmm. uh, is really important that, you know, I, I don't think what Peterson is doing can be called simply psychology. Yeah. I don't think what Verbeke is doing can simply be called psychology. It's, it's a lot of it is philosophy, a lot of it's art. Yeah. Um, it's blending a lot of different creative modalities into a scientific understanding. And I think that is why it's powerful for people because most people don't actually have much of a scientific relationship mm. with the world. Like they just don't, they pretend to, but they really don't. Mm. And uh, they really need to be spoken to in terms of, um, you know, wisdom and uh, the kind of feeling relationship we have to most things. Mm. And the stories and myths are actually what people um experience when they think about reality like they see it in this sort of narrative way not a scientific way so that's definitely what peterson and berbeck are doing quite well yeah yeah it's like the the mythological language uh, bridges the is and not yeah that's a good way to phrase it yeah so one thing you explored with peterson was working with dreams therapeutically and I'm curious if you did any dream work before starting therapy sessions with Peterson. 
tried. Um, I tried to do one of those lucid dreaming books, you know, where you like a 30 day challenge and you start getting lucid dreams. So I tried that. Um, and I tried uh, practice where I recorded all my dreams, hmm. but I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just like writing them down. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was the extent of it. Um, yeah. It was only with Peterson where there was more of a intense dream analysis. Well, we do have some of your dreams. Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, part of the show is doing dreams at the end yeah. of the episode. And we do the dreams of audience members who write in. And we've, we've even done our own dreams on the show. So um, it would be really fascinating to dive into some of Peter's dreams. Or even, um, are, are these dreams that you shared with Dr. Peterson as well? Um, so I sent you two dreams. Yeah. Um, the The one... That's uh, about the woman uh, is, is the one that I shared with Peterson. That one had a, um, that was sort of like almost the highlight, I would say, of the whole kind of two-year therapy process I had mm -hmm. with him. Um, and then the other one I shared uh, on, with the boy, um, that was not with Peterson. I didn't share that with him. But yeah, I, did I did. I did. I will say this. I did have this habit of after seeing him, I emailed him some of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you responded, sometimes you did. Most times you didn't, I should, I should be honest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe we can start with the little boy dream. Yeah. Because that's, uh, it seems like a more intuitive progression. Sure. It's, yeah, it's a little, um, a little shorter. So this dream was fairly recent, correct, Peter? The one with the little boy. Yeah, it was uh, like uh, two years ago, maybe. When Epstein didn't kill himself. Uh, that was, uh, it happened like that day or day after. That's how I remember it. Okay. All right. So here's the dream. I was the president of the United States of America and it was during some kind of emergency. So I was ushered to this private room. In this room, I discovered a hidden stairwell, which I walked down. It led me to this dirty basement and all these toys from my childhood were there. And so was the childhood version of myself. It seemed like he was stuck there and he could not leave. He was so happy to see me and he just wanted to play. I was cold to him and said, no, I was too busy for that. I am the president after all. I walked away secretly heartbroken. So I actually hadn't read this dream because Peter posted this in his journal entry. Um, I guess this was maybe eight months ago you posted it something in like that. june i think june 1st that was that yeah yeah and i hadn't read it for some reason even though i was following peter's journals but um you are um relaying a dream that is like the dreams that i describe often and mm -hmm. sort of the kinds of dreams i've talked to about uh talked to with other uh with other men and with other men at the stoa which is sort of the the lost little boy and so you I mean, reading the stream, it's like, oh, I had no idea that you you even had this theme going on in your life as well, because I had posited before that this must be an almost universal theme for men is the banished little boy, the 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 child who plays with toys, who's been told there's no place for you in my life anymore. Mm -hmm. You have to go away. Or like in, in Game of Thrones, there's like the kill the boy kind of theme that they have where John's be born right where John Snow needs to kill the boy in order to grow up and I, I, I see that as a very common experience for men mm. of how they interpret their own maturity is actually one of like destroying um, whatever weakness is in them mm. do you see that as being 
part of this pattern for you, Peter? Um, that was that was the the read uh, in in sort of an abstract way, and to kind of feel into that dream, it was like it was like wow, it, like the uh, that was a shortened version uh, I put into it. it was, There's more details to it, um, but it was in the when I was that age. I think the boy was I don't know six to eight or something like that, and uh, in the house I grew up with, the the basement at that age when I was at that age, it was kind of unfinished. So it was sort of like kind of a creepy basement. Um, and so that was the basement that was, uh, um, that he was there. He was all by himself. And it was like, he was by himself since he was like, you know, for like years, for like 20 years, he was by himself or something like that. And he just saw me and he got so excited, you know, and then he just wanted to play and he had all these, like all my the old toys were there and everything. And then, uh, um, and I felt the boy, you know, it was so fucking vivid. I felt it or felt him. And I said, you know, I can't play him too important in the dream. And I left, um, but everything was so vivid about it. And after I woke up, I just cried. I was mm-hmm. so fucking tender. I was never that tender after a dream. Mm-hmm. And then me and Camille or Camille and I were in Montreal uh, for a week for a weekend. And then just the whole weekend, I was just crying. Like I was walking the street, just like, I just wanted to collapse and like, you know, holding back my tears just because the dream made me so fucking tender. Mm. Um, and I didn't analyze it in the abstract way. Cause you know, it seemed obvious what it, what it was about. Um, but it was on a like somatic, very on a, like an embodied way. It was very um, integrating. I think just mm. kind of feeling into that, that lost abandoned boy and then bringing him back. Um, and I feel a lot more integrated with that energy. I, I, have, I have like kind of a boyish, like, haha, like, you know, like kind of charm humor about me. Um, I always had that. And even in the last, uh, uh, <laughs> even the last shadow uh, thing you guys did, the uh, shadow play thing you get at the Stoa, I had a really great relationship with that boy. Mm-hmm. You did an exercise where you summoned uh, kind of the boy and me and me and him were like, awesome. You know, like mm-hmm. it's like a great relationship now it feels like. And I think that dream helped um, bring that about. Yeah, this is such an interesting example of that potent emergence of unconscious material. Um, some of the symbols in here are so classic that it's it like kind of just slaps you in the face, like the dissension of the stairwell. You know, often we, we see that in dreams as being able to move through these different layers of the psyche. So moving down into the basement, into that space that's, you know, where we store things that we don't need anymore, the hidden, the forgotten, the aspects of the psyche that we no longer need up in those, in those higher levels of conscious awareness. And there is the child and that energy that he's bringing to you of excitement and uh, welcoming. Uh, It's, it's no surprise to me that it was so tender for you after that, but it seems it's maybe been a couple of years and there's been further integration of that boy's presence in your life that you've been able to maybe take him out of the basement and, and be with him more consciously. Um, have you had any other dreams since this one where you've uh, interacted with the little boy? Um, no. Or maybe I did. Um, nothing. Nothing comes to mind. But like, I feel him right now. You know, he's he's present. Um, mm. The energy, and and during that dream, I just felt him intimately, and I just felt his loneliness, mm. and it just was so sad. You know, like um, it, it tore me up. Just like knowing a, like a little boy feels that way. Like you know, yeah. so alone in a fucking basement by himself, 
playing with toys and just wants to play with someone and gets rejected. Mm. Like, oh, I felt everything he felt. Um, and that was sort of like, I guess, my reintroduction to yeah. him, uh, that dream. Yeah, I see you as having, I mean, like you just described with the uh, the exercise we did with the little boy, you're saying that you have a good relationship with, with the boy and it seems like you, you two get along and you're friends. And uh, I just, I feel like I pick up on that in your work, in your journal entries and in the kind of aesthetic that you like to go for at the Stoa, for instance, like it's very playful. It's serious, but not super serious and it can be kind of jokey and it can be kind of rascally, but like not too jokey, not too much of a rascal. And I feel like that, that balance of the playful side with the like, let's get shit done side is, it seems balanced in you. And I think that, uh, it's interesting to see that reflected mythologically, uh, in your dreams and in your visualizations as well. And it's kind of interesting, like, I can kind of code switch and talk different perspectives, right? Like when sometimes when I, I say the boy, it's sort of like a certain constellation of ener- or emotions or energy or a subpersonality or whatever uh, that I can feel right now. Um, and there was a previous m- move where I used to shame that sort of mm-hmm. energy because I wasn't living up to certain adult scripts, yeah. um, you know? So it's like, oh, I need to live through these adult scripts before I engage in this thing. Um, and uh yeah, kind of like entangling all that type of stuff really helped uh, um, kind of be here with this this boyish energy because it's it's like, and I commonly say like, um, and I and and you know, having that boyish energy is attractive, like compared to like a, a man who's childish versus mm-hmm. a man who's boyish, right? There's a different energy there. Like a childish is someone yeah. who wants someone else to take care of him, uh, has a kind of a needy, whiny energy, and a boyish energy is sort of like this kind of youthful optimism yeah uh there's this kind of like excitement the jouissance for life um and i think that's really great to have because if you kind of like kill that spirit then um you're just like lugging around uh you know dragging your ass through uh through life yeah i i absolutely agree i think it's always really compelling to see especially adults that are much older than myself still have that youthful energy, that childlike wonder to them. Like they grew up, but at the same time, they didn't lose that part of themselves. And that is in essence, that kind of mastery that you see when you can integrate these different parts. And even in the dream, you have that adult script, which is the president who's very serious and has a lot of responsibility and cannot play and is denying the inner child And that became a marker of development that would unfold over the next few years for you shows what happens really if you were to stick in that imbalanced place, that sense of loss, heartbrokenness of maybe not being fully whole if the kid continued to stay in the basement. And now that relationship is much stronger. And I think that brings just such a a wholeness of vitality and life energy. And it's, it's cool. Like I was the president, I think of the United States in that dream. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, I reached sort of like an apex, you know, like, or like kind of like the, the, the peak of success uh, <laughs> in, in kind of like a, in a certain symbolic way. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I had to go down to the basement and then yeah. find yeah. out like, you know, I'm incomplete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, powerful. I was wondering about the, the president of the United States, <laughs> even though you're Canadian of, of, what it symbolized to you, do you think? And I think the idea that it's like, it is like sort of like the apex um, of success is interesting, but do you think there's anything kind of more sinister about it of like 
being the president of the United States is actually a sort of warped responsibility or requires a kind of way of being that is not truly yourself, that mm. has like an unholy alliance with power, anything like that? I don't know. Um, I remember what just came to mind right now. I recall being a kid thinking like, you know, the president of the United States was like the richest person in the world. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like silly <laughs> notions like that. Like he's not the richest. I'm like, I was so surprised. Um, so in my mind, when I was a little boy, at least uh, it's uh, you know, that was like the most coolest, mm. powerful, important thing you could be in the world. Um, so it might've been just a projection of that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, nothing, nothing, there was no extra kind of like sinister felt sense associated with the president uh, symbol in the dream. Yeah. It makes sense that the childhood version of success and acclaim is even being presented in the dream. So really like the child is the, the real curator of that dream in all these different mm. ways. It's mm. good. <laughs> Get to the bottom of this dream. Finally. <laughs> All right. Finally. Um, all right. Should we move on to the second dream? Let's do it. It's a juicy, this is a juicy one. Yeah. This is a juicy one. And this is one that you actually did do with Peterson, correct? Yep. Okay. All right. Here's the dream. I was in a room that resembled our living room when I was a child. I was with a woman who was dying of cancer. She was fake beautiful, done up like a Barbie doll, with breast implants and bottled blonde hair right out of a Playboy magazine from the late 90s. We were talking about her condition, and we had a really good connection. It was non-sexual, but emotional. Not in some romantic way, but in a pure connection sort of way. I felt bad for her and cared about her. After our conversation, we hugged and exchanged phone numbers. Then another man in the room started to talk, to talk to her. He looked like this infamous pickup artist whose work I've read. He started chatting to her and immediately asked her how much, as if she were a prostitute. Then she became all businesslike and gave him a number. I was surprised as I hadn't realized she was a prostitute. The pickup artist lookalike then started to see if he could get sex from her for free. She said no. And then they exchanged phone numbers. As she left, I started chatting to him. He had this braggy vibe. I was rather sad about the whole situation, mainly about how uninterested he was in her condition, which he did not even seem to know about. The dream ended with both of us received a text from her. She texted me a very warm message, indicating that it had been a nice chat, and she texted him her price. Very interesting dream. There's like these dueling perspectives between these kind of inner psychic figures. If we look at all of these as representations of of Peter, where you have this more compassionate, open, kind-hearted kind of dream ego perspective tapping into what her experience is. And then you have this contrast, the pickup artist who's all business, who's kind of treating her as an object I'm curious to know, Peter, what was going on for you at this time when you had this dream, any sort of context or dynamics, um, especially like one thing I wrote down was like the withering away of the feminine, like this relationship where the the feminine is being 
uh, imaged in this dream as as withering and dying of cancer? And were you in a period of time when you were working on that relationship with the inner feminine? Mm. Yeah, like, uh, firstly, I just really like this dream. It's like, it's just like so perfect. Like, you know, like, yeah. and it kind of just like, like it was like the target to hit like exactly where it needed to hit at that point. Mm. Um, so kind of the, the preface it, like things that were going on. Uh, if you recall uh, the, the social trauma I received and then mm. out of in high school, it was kind of like antisocial. And I felt like uh, I had a lot of catching up to do. I felt like my mm. social skills were like terrible. I had social anxiety. I had big time social anxiety. I couldn't even go to a, a Starbucks and order a coffee with my hands. just like, you know, shaking. Mm. Um, it, was that, it was that bad. And so, you know, I think in one of the self-help books I was reading, it was like, you know, uh, people skills are like the essential skills that you need. And I'm, I, that just stuck in my head. I'm like, okay, I'm fucking throwing the kitchen sink at this thing. So I um, did everything. I read every single kind of social book I, I could get my hands on, uh, public speaking classes, uh, Toastmasters, acting classes, a lot of improv, a lot of mm -hmm. acting classes, a lot of acting classes. I actually mm -hmm. was some... Indie indie films too, uh, which 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 was quite funny. Uh, hopefully they're buried on the oh, internet. Wow. We can find them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some, yeah. that, that's blackmail right there. Existential blackmail. Right. Uh, <laughs> what I'm doing after the episode <laughs> with the wayback machine. Um, uh, and uh, the yeah, so I did the, the acting classes, and then uh, I read a lot of uh, pickup artist literature too. I was never mm -hmm. a pickup artist. Never really engaged in that, even though I did approach challenges and rejection challenges. Um, I never. Um, I never was a, a pickup artist, uh, but that led me to, uh, since I, I knew, so, I read basically every book I could find on it. And um, that led me to befriend people who were in the pickup artist scene in Toronto. Cause one, another thing about Toronto, they had a huge pickup artist scene. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there, but there's this place called Maddie. It was like, at one time it was just like, it's like a, like a virus like swarming with pickup artists approaching girls it was, it was ridiculous um uh but so i knew i had a lot of buddies who were into that and um and just you know you know wingmanning them and stuff like that i, well, I was happy to do that at the time and it was tempting you know like mm -hmm. and this was a time too where i had a lot of during the social anxiety high school phase i had a lot of acne um mm -hmm. and i think that probably was associated with the stress and anxiety and whatnot and so once that started clearing up um, you know, I started getting into shape, started working out, lifting weights. Uh, I was like huge into style, like borderline metrosexual type of thing back in the day. Um, and so I started like physically becoming more attractive. Um, mm. and I started becoming more knowledgeable in social dynamics, uh, the sexual marketplace and all that type of stuff. And I just started becoming more kind of interpersonally attractive. My character became attractive. I knew basically the formula, if you will. Um, and in contrast to someone who wasn't getting laid in high school <laughs> and now someone who was like, um, even though I was with Camille at the time and, you know, um, uh, I loved her. I, I was, when I first met her, it was like, you know, she was the one. Um, and as an aside, like being in a relationship with Camille for over 10 years now, you know, is one of the best, I should have mentioned this, one of the best uh, um, acts of personal development because you're mm -hmm. not just growing with yourself, you're growing with another person. And yeah. um one of the, the aspects of the relationship is truthfulness. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, uh, at that point, uh, I was tempted though, you know, because now I'm like uh, in my late 20s, uh, 
kind of attractive, could get younger women, could get older women. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, and just that that lust uh, um, was there and getting the attention uh, uh, from women. And then knowing all my buddies, what they're doing and the quote unquote success that they were getting, I was really tempted. Uh, and so this was a conversation, uh, a theme, a consistent one that I was having with Peterson. And it came up and then he started talking about like, uh osiris or whatever so he went on this like mythological rant and we never really kind of like kind of like really handled it and then i remember i think he just got like like tired of me talking about it or something and then he just like boom and then one session he was just, like really fucking going at me like like uh i'm um, trying to analyze um this kind of consistent proclivity towards this desire for just random women um and then he kind of had this hunter me- metaphor this target metaphor um and it was quite interesting. It just kind of like, kind of like shook me up a little bit, knowing how um, objectifying pickup artistry is, if you kind of like mm-hmm. take it to its logical conclusion. And one of the challenges in, in, in one of the um, men's group, and I actually wrote about this again today, was uh, doing a hundred approach challenge in one day. So we approached a hundred women. Like, so I approached a hundred women in one day. And then the thing was just to get their phone number or ask for their phone number. And then that's like, like a, um, you know, you get, you, you get one right there. And so I did that. Um, and one day I got like 37 numbers or something like that. Or there's 27 uh, or 37. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> I think I beat the other two guys though, uh, that I was doing with anyways, that's all anyways, that matters. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and I did it for not like to pick up women, I did it for kind of like, uh, confidence reasons, getting over uh, rejection, but I remember it just like, it felt like a video game at the end. It was kind of creepy. You're just objectifying a person just mm-hmm. to get like uh, a target. And then this is what the pickup artists do. They train themselves to be essentially sociopaths in, in the social mm-hmm. dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then Peterson's kind of analysis there just kind of like dawned on me. I'm like, oh my God, yes, that is, if I pursue that path, that's where I'm going to go, right? Yeah. Just become someone who totally objectifies women, make them a target, whatever. Um, so it kind of shook me up. Uh, mm-hmm. because I had this desire, I had some experiences and then there was like, what should I do there? And then I had this dream the night after, uh, or the same day. Uh, and, and it was that dream. And mm-hmm. then the woman was very interesting too, because she had cancer. So she was sick and she was like fake, you know, like fake boobs, yeah. fake hair. And that was sort of the girl that, uh, the type of girl that when I was, you know, when my masturbation career started, when I was quite young, that like the Pamela Anderson archetype, you know, that was mm. the, the, the ideal. Mm. Um, okay. So I think there was something at, uh, in play there. Uh, and then the, the most important thing of the dream was, it was the ending of it. And I remember it, it was vivid. It was like, it was a weird thing because it felt like cinematic in a way, because they zoomed out on, it was like a split screen and it was like the, uh, the CD pickup artist cell phone and then my cell phone, and mm. then it was a zoom up on both cell phones. And then mine was just this warm, like, oh, thanks for actually treating me like a fucking human being and talking mm-hmm. to me without wanting yeah. to get anything, um, like without being a target. And and then the pickup artist was a number because uh, of her price, because uh, yeah. she was the prostitute in the dream. Uh, and then it's like, wow. So if I go that route where I'm just objectifying women, targeting them this, I'm going to have to pay a price. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the other way is just like, you know, you're having a real connection. So it felt really mm-hmm. like, um, kind of a crossroads that dream and immediately I knew which one I was going to pick. Um, mm-hmm. the one that leads to I thou relationships mm-hmm. and that really, at least on an intellectual level made me commit to my, my woman, uh, Camille, mm-hmm. uh, to make it work. 
And then, yeah. you know, that soon led to me asking her to marry me. Uh, so without that dream, without, you know, the, the, that session with Peterson, you know, I might not be married today. Um, mm. So it was very, I'm very grateful. Um, there's a lot of other stuff he helped me with, but I'm very grateful for that dream in particular. Mm. I want to pick up that Peterson thread about Osiris because it immediately <laughs> caught my attention. Of, uh, course. of course you do. <laughs> because in the myth, Osiris is murdered by like the dark brother by Set, god of disorder, and he's like chopped up into a million pieces. But it's the feminine, it's Isis, who comes and puts him back together. And there's this interesting dynamic between that kind of internal chaotic principle that like usurps the throne, that brings destruction, and how that feminine principle comes in to restore order. So, you know, I don't know where he was taking it, but just in regards to this dynamic of the destructive masculine by imaged in your dream as that pickup artist, that could be that set version. That's that God of disorder that wants to come in and overpower and would ultimately, ultimately kind of lead to this uh, dispersal of your like energy and your spirit. And it's the feminine that really comes in as that mediating force to keep things tethered and whole to even in some sense kind of heal the energy. So I think there's actually a really interesting connection there. I kind of wonder if you feel as if the pickup artist in the dream, let's say maybe it's another version of you, like the, yes. the two individuals in the dream, they're both yeah. Peter. Mm -hmm. One's the pickup artist who's objectifying the woman, uh, turning her into a prostitute. One's the one who cares about her condition. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you feel like the pickup artist has been transmuted into a virtuous pickup artist in some way <laughs> in you, because you still evoke the same, at least from my perspective, you still evoke the same sort of um, manly kind of like, uh, gregarious pursuer of women who's like, like, oh, everyone at the Stoa is so fuckable, like, but I'm not going to do it, like, is kind of... Kind please, of the, please, uh, that's not, that's not going to help my PR if you say that. <laughs> Give me two, like, in, in an instant. Um, yeah, I, I do, I, I, I like to be like to be charitable what you just said. I think uh, yeah. there's uh, um, like the Stoic daddy thing. Right. There's mm -hmm. like a, a playful persona where it's I'm, I'm, I'm sexing up, you know, my image because I'm, I'm yeah. like I'm there's eros like flowing through me. I'm, I'm quite mm -hmm. horny all right. the time. And right. uh, and it's almost like um, some of my more raunchy journal entries, which if you read them, I don't think anyone would feel like, oh, that's inappropriate. Um, but it's no. like yeah. it's expressing a certain um, aspect of me um, mm -hmm. when I'm feeling kind of like, uh, you know, hot and bothered. Um, and, uh, so, so that's, that's sort of like that, that I'm happy to play with that kind of persona and it, and it mm -hmm. feels right. It feels authentic in the Mormon. If it is alive, I'm not going to like just fucking force it. Um, and then with the virtuous transmuted, the virtuous pickup artist thing, I would say that, uh, again, I was never a pickup artist, but I, I, I pretty much know all their tricks, you know, like all their, their skill set in a way. And I view it as, um, exaptive, you know, um, like, you can take that knowledge, that tools and apply it to make yourself more um, attractive or don't do things that would make you less attractive, essentially, because um, we all have these weird tics and stuff like that. And, um, and then that just applies to like picking up women. It actually makes you more attractive to other men. It's, it's good for marketing, uh, all that type of stuff. Um, and it really, the thing, and I wrote about actually the, the pickup artist today, I kind of went into the history of it. 
And um, knowing that stuff and wingmaning my friends and seeing them operate and, you know, kind of being in quote unquote in the field um, and similar to like being a trainer at Dale Carnegie training and, and all that type of stuff, you get really sensitive of all these social dynamics at play uh, and you just speak a different language. Um, uh, kind of like a socially holistic language and then having some of these kind of tools and tricks kind of really informs that. And so I think these, the whole pickup artist got a bad rap uh, in the mainstream. And I think deservedly so, because if you just pursue that for, for having sex with women, um, then it's going to lead to I thou relationships to quote Martin Buber and it makes you a sociopath. I like, I think that is, um, that's true, but you can learn the stuff and you can experience it as a form of assertiveness training or, or um, you know, exposure therapy, get over your anxiety. Uh, and then if you get out, um, I think it can be quite helpful. Uh, so, and it's, it's a dying art. No one does it anymore, especially during COVID and the apps came and then uh, look maxing was a new, new, new movement that kind of replaced the whole pickup artist thing. Cause you know, everyone's just improving their appearance. Uh, and then there's a lot of MGTOW incel people that kind of split off uh, that just kind of gave up their defeatist approach on the sexual marketplace. So it is kind of like a, a lost art, really, all that type of stuff. Um, but I found it's very helpful for me, not only in the social element, but a lot of other ways. Now coupled with the, um, the heart-based approach with all these kind of somatic and interpersonal practices is making kind of a really interesting combination, um, I find, in myself. Yeah, the dream sort of has those two versions, the compassionate, heart-centered, uh, more uh, reciprocal energy with the pickup artist and recognizing what qualities he does bring. But really, it's it's the merging of the two that really brings probably a stronger dynamic of character and really sort of similar to the other dream with the president and the child. There needs to be an integration mm -hmm. of both sides, really, for there to be a sense of wholeness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Peter, again, is the creator of the STOA. Uh, we've been running events at the STOA. Um, we've been promoting those events on this podcast. So mm -hmm. the uh, Shadow Play series will continue um, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And we might even invite some guests from the Youngian community to appear on the STOA to speak with us. That's in the works. But yes, if you want to check out Peter's work, go to thestoa.ca. There's lots of events, lots of really interesting, diverse things happening all the time. Thank you, Peter, very much for appearing on our podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. Do you have a dream you'd like us to analyze? Head over to goldenshadow.org to submit your dream for possible interpretation on a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>